0: In this edition of my podcast, I'm going to make a reading from a book called Under the Black Flag by David Cordingley. And this book's been really key in speeding up my knowledge and understanding and my enthusiasm for all things pirate. I'm going to read uh, from chapter four, which is called Women Pirates and Pirates Women. I hope you like it. The harbour at Nassau is a long stretch of shimmering blue water which lies between the wharves lining the town's waterfront and a low offshore island of sandy beaches and palm trees. Today the harbour welcomes cruise ships and visiting yachts but in the 18th century it provided a sheltered anchorage for small trading vessels and the occasional man of war. It was also a well-known refuge and meeting place for pirates. On August 22nd 1720 A dozen pirates rowed out to a single masted sailing vessel, which was anchored in the middle of the channel. The vessel was a 12-ton sloop called the William, which was owned by a local man, Captain John Ham. She had four guns on her broad sun-bleached decks and two swivel guns mounted on her rails. She was well-equipped with ammunition and spear gear and had a canoe lying alongside which was used as a tender. The pirates climbed on board, heaved up the anchor and set the sails. They were soon clear of the other vessels in the anchorage and heading out to sea in the stolen sloop. Thefts of this type were not uncommon in the Caribbean but a keen-eyed observer might have noticed something about the pirate crew which was unusual. Although they were dressed in men's jackets and long seamen's trousers two of the pirates were women. The leader of the pirates was John Rackham a bold and somewhat reckless character whose colourful clothes had earned him the nickname of Calico Jack. He was fond of women and had quite a few girlfriends on the coast of Cuba. He'd been a quartermaster in Captain Vane's pirate company, but in November 1718 he had challenged his captain's decision not to attack a French frigate in the Windward Passage. The crew branded Vane a coward and elected Rackham as captain in his place. Taking command of Vane's ship, he proceeded to plunder a succession of small vessels in the seas around Jamaica. There's no record of Calico Jack using torture or murder and he seems to have gone out of his way to treat his victims with restraint. When he'd finished looting a Madeira ship, he returned the vessel to her master and arranged for Hosea Tisdale, a Jamaican tavern keeper, to be given passage home. Compared to Bartholomew Roberts and Blackbeard, who commanded 40-gun warships, and sailed into action with a flotilla of supporting vessels, Calico Jack was a small-time pirate. He preferred to operate with a modest sloop, and he restricted his attacks to small fishing boats and local trading ships. His chief claim to fame lay not in his exploits during his two years as a pirate captain, but in his association with the female pirates Mary Read and Anne Bonnet, whose lives were considerably more adventurous and interesting than his own. Calico Jack met Anne Bonny in New Providence He had sailed to the island in May 1719 to take advantage of the amnesty being offered by the Governor of the Bahamas He accepted the royal pardon and for a while abandoned his life as a pirate While frequenting the taverns on the waterfront at Nassau he came across Anne Bonnet and proceeded to court her in the same direct manner he used when attacking a ship no time wasted. straight up alongside, every gun brought to play and prize-boarded. He persuaded her to abandon her sailor husband and took her to sea with him. When she became pregnant he took her to his friends in Cuba and there she had their child. As soon as she was up and about Calico Jack sent for her and she rejoined his crew dressed as usual in men's clothes. He had taken up piracy again and it was around this time that Mary Reed joined the crew. She too was dressed as a man and had been sailing on a merchant ship which he had captured. Anne Bonnet found herself strongly attracted to the new member of the pirate crew and in a quiet moment when they were alone she revealed herself as a woman. Mary reads, knowing what she would be at and being sensible of her own capacity in that way, was forced to come to a right understanding with her and so to the great disappointment of Anne Bonny, she let her know that she was a woman also. (laughs) This is a direct quote. To avoid any further misunderstandings, Calico Jack was let into the secret. By the summer of 1720, they were all back in New Providence and were evidently well known to the authorities there. When they stole the Sloop William from Nassau Harbour, the Governor had no doubt about their identities. On September 5th, he issued a proclamation which set out the details of the sloop and gave the names of Rackham and his associates. The list included two women by name, Anne Fulford, alias Bonney, and Mary Reed. The proclamation declared that the said John Rackham and his said company are hereby proclaimed pirates and enemies to the crown of Great Britain, and are to be so treated and deemed by all His Majesty's subjects. So it's pretty serious. The governor of the Bahamas at this time was Captain Woods Rogers, a tough and resolute seaman who had commanded a successful privateering voyage around the world from 1708 to 1711. He had come out to the West Indies in 1718 with a commission from the British government to rid the Bahamas of the pirate colony, which was based on New Providence. He sailed into Nassau Harbour with three warships and had made strenuous efforts to re-establish law and order. He had authority from King George to issue pardons to pirates who agreed to abandon their trade, and Calico Jack was one of the many who did so. The new governor was prepared to use harsh measures if the pardons failed to produce results. When some of the pardoned pirates returned to their old ways, he had them rounded up and hanged on the waterfront at Nassau beneath the ramparts of the fort. Woods Rogers was equally decisive when he learned that the sloop William had been stolen from the harbour. As well as issuing the proclamation, he immediately dispatched a sloop with 45 men to catch the pirates and on September the 2nd, he dispatched a second sloop armed with 12 guns and a crew of 54 men to join the chase. Calico Jack must have learned that vessels were out looking for him. After attacking seven fishing boats off Harbour Island in the Bahamas, he headed south. He intercepted two merchant sloops off the coast of the Hispaniola, On October the 1st and two weeks later he took a schooner near Port Maria on the north coast of Jamaica. During the next three weeks the William cruised slowly westward past the coves and sandy beaches of Ocho Rios, Falmouth and Montego Bay until she came to Negril Point at the extreme western tip of the island. There Calico Jack's luck ran out. Sailing in the vicinity was a heavily armed privateer sloop commanded by Captain Jonathan Barnett a brisk fellow, with a commission from the Governor of Jamaica to take pirates. Hearing a gun fired from Rackham's anchored vessel, Barnet changed course to investigate. Alarmed by the appearance of Barnet's powerful-looking vessel, Rackham hurriedly got under way. Barnet gave chase and caught up with the pirates at 10 o'clock at night. He hailed them and received the reply, John Rackham from Cuba. Barnet thereupon ordered him to surrender. But the pirates shouted defiance and fired a swivel gun at Barnet's ship. In the darkness it was difficult for either side to see its opponents clearly, but Barnett immediately retaliated with a broadside and a volley of small shot. The blast carried away the pirate's boom, effectively disabling their vessel, and Barnett came alongside and boarded the pirate sloop. The only resistance came from Mary Reed and Anne Bunny, They were armed with pistols and cutlasses and shouted and swore at everyone in sight, but they failed to rally their shipmates, who tamely surrendered. The next morning, the pirates were put ashore at Davis's Cove, a tiny inlet halfway between Negril and Lucia, Lucia. They were delivered to Major Richard James, a militia officer who assembled a guard and escorted them back across the island to Spanish Town Jail. On November 16th, Calico Jack and the 10 male members of the crew were tried for piracy. A few days later, on November 28th, the Admiralty Court assembled again for the trial of the two female members of the pirate crew. Mary Read and Anne Bonny never acquired the notoriety of Henry Morgan, Captain Kidd or Blackbeard, but they have attracted more attention than many of the most successful and formidable pirate captains of history, This is partly due to the vivid description of their lives in Johnson's General History of the Pirates and partly due to the fact that they were the only women pirates of the great age of piracy that we know anything about. This has given them a mythic quality which has inspired several books, plays and films and has led to their inclusion in the writings of feminist historians as well as in books on transvestism and cross-racing. The problem with their story is that the lack of documentation for their early lives. The printed record of their trial and brief references in the colonial documents and contemporary newspapers provide information about the last two years of their lives, but for the rest we have to rely on Captain Johnson, who is, unusually, sorry, who is usually accurate but rarely indicates the source of his information. And the story that he tells is almost too amazing to be true. As he himself says their history is full of surprising turns and adventures and the odd incidents of their rambling lives are such that some may be tempted to think the whole story no better than a novel or romance. Anyway according to Johnson Mary Read was born in England the second child of a young mother whose husband went away to sea and never returned. Following her husband's disappearance the young woman had an affair with another man and became pregnant but she was so ashamed at the idea of giving birth that she went away into the country to stay with friends. Shortly before Mary was born, the elder child, who was a boy, died. The mother soon ran out of money and decided to approach her mother-in-law for help providing for the child. She dressed Mary up as a boy so that she could pass her off as her son and travel to London. The mother-in-law duly agreed to provide a crown a week for the child's maintenance. So Mary Reed was brought up as a boy And at the age of 13, her mother secured her a post, not as a chambermaid, but as a young footman to a French lady. She soon got tired of menial life and, growing bold and strong and having also a roving mind, she entered herself on board a man of war. She then went to Flanders and enlisted as a cadet in the army. She distinguished herself by her bravery in several military engagements, but she fell in love with a Flemish soldier in a regiment. The soldier was delighted to find himself sharing a tent with a young woman, but Mary Reid was not prepared to continue indefinitely as his mistress. When the campaign was over, they got married. They left the army and set up as proprietors of a public house near Breda called the Three Horse Shoes. Unhappily, Mary's husband died not long after the marriage, and when the Peace of Ryswick was signed in 1697, The soldiers went elsewhere and the three horseshoes lost most of its trade. Mary Reed had no option but to seek her fortune elsewhere. She dressed up as a man again and after a spell in a foot regiment, she embarked on a ship bound for the West Indies. The ship was captured by pirates and after further adventures, she found herself on the ship commanded by Rackham with Anne Bonnet among the crew. Now, Anne Bonnet had also been brought up as a boy. She was born near Cork in Ireland and was the illegitimate daughter of a lawyer. Her father separated from his wife following a quarrel. The wife upset because she discovered her husband had been having an affair with the maid of the house. The husband was enraged when his wife accused the maid of stealing some silver spoons and had her sent to prison. The husband was so fond of the girl he had by the maid that he decided that she must come and live with him avoid a scandal, he dressed her up as a boy and pretended that he was training her up as a lawyer's clerk. The lawyer's wife discovered what was going on and stopped the allowance she'd been giving him. The scandal affected his practice and he decided to go abroad. So taking the maid and their daughter Anne, he sailed to Carolina where he made enough money as a merchant to enable a purchase of a plantation. Anne disappointed her father by falling for a penniless young seaman called Bonnie, and married, marrying him Turned out of the house by her father she and Bunny sailed to the island of Providence where, as we've seen, she met Calico Jack became a pirate and after two adventurous years ended up in the courthouse in Jamaica alongside Mary Read The printed transcript of the trial at Spanish Town provides first-hand information about some of Calico Jack's exploits and the behaviour of Mary Read and Anne Bunny. The Admiralty Court that assembled on November 16th was presided over by Sir Nicholas Laws, the Governor of Jamaica. There were 12 commissioners, two of whom were Royal, Ma- Royal Navy Captains. The men on trial were Rackham himself, described, described as John Rackham, late of the Island of Providence in America, mariner, late master and commander of a certain pirate sloop. George Featherton, also of Providence, late master of the said sloop. Richard Corner, the quartermaster, and John Davis, John Howell, Thomas Bourne, Noah Harwood, James Dobbins, Patrick Carty, Thomas Errol, and John Fenwick. There were four charges against the prisoners. There were two witnesses for the prosecution. Thomas Spenlow of Port Royal, Jamaica, described how his schooner was fired on by the sloop manned by the prisoners of war. He said, they boarded him and took him and took out of that said schooner 50 rolls of tobacco and nine bags of pimento paper, kept him in their custody about four to eight hours, then let him and the schooner go. The second witness was James Spatchiers, mariner of Royal Port, who gave a detailed description of the action between the pirate sloop and the trading sloop commanded by Jonathan Barnett. The prisoners pleaded not guilty to the charges, but all were found guilty and sentenced to death. Five were hanged the next day at Gallows Point, a windswept and featureless promontory (laughs) on the narrow spit of land which leads out to Port Royal. The other six were hanged the next day in Kingston. Calico Jack's body was put into an iron cage and hung from a gibbet on Dead Man's Cay, a small island within sight of Port Royal, which is today called Rackham's Bay. The trial of Mary Read and Anne Bonny followed similar lines. The charges were exactly the same, but there were some additional witnesses for the prosecution, all of whom stressed that female pirates were willing members of Rackham's crew and took an active part in the attack on merchant vessels. The most graphic description of their appearance was provided by Dorothy Thomas, who was in a canoe on the north coast of Jamaica when she was attacked by the pirate sloop. She said, The two women prisoners at the bar were then on board the said sloop and wore men's jackets and long trousers and handkerchiefs tied around their heads. And each of them had a machete and a pistol in their hands and cursed and swore at the men to murder the deponent and that they should kill her to prevent her coming against them. And the deponent further said that the reason of her knowing and believing them to be women then was by the largeness of their breasts." Two Frenchmen who were present when Rackham attacked, Spendlow's Schooner, explained that, with the aid of an interpreter, how the women were very active on board and that Anne Bonnet handed gunpowder to the men also, and also that what they saw, any vessel gave chase or attacked, they wore men's clothes and at other times they wore women's clothes. Thomas Dillon, master of the sloop Mary, confirmed that both women were on board Rackham's sloop when they made their attack. He said, Anne Bonnet, one of the prisoners at the bar, had a gun in her hand. They were both very profligate, cursing and swearing much, and very ready and willing to do anything on board. When the women were asked whether they had anything to say in their defence, they both said they had no witnesses, nor did they have any questions to ask. The prisoners and all the onlookers were ordered to withdraw from the courtroom, while Nicholas Laws and the twelve commissioners considered the evidence. It was unanimously agreed that the two women were guilty of the piracies and robberies in the third and fourth charges brought against them. They were brought back to the bar and told that they had both been found guilty. They could offer no reason why sentence of death should not be passed upon them and so Sir Nicholas, in his role as president of the Court, sentenced them with the time-honoured words. You, Mary Reet and Anne Bonnet, alias Bon." Or to go from hence to the place from whence you came and from thence to the place of execution where you shall be severally hanged by the neck till you are severally dead and God of his infinite mercy be merciful to both your souls. For some reason the prisoners delayed their trump card until this moment. Perhaps they did not believe they would be found guilty until they heard the president's doom-laden words but immediately after the judgment was pronounced, they informed the court that they were both pregnant. Unfortunately, we don't know how this news was received by those present, but it must have caused something of a sensation. All we do know from the printed transcript of the trial is that the court ordered that the said sentence should be respited and then an inspection should be made. An examination proved that both women were indeed pregnant and they were reprieved. Unhappily, Mary Reads contracted fever soon after the trial and died in prison. The Parish Register for the District of St Catherine in Jamaica records her burial on April 28th, 1721. It is not known for certain what happened to Anne Bonnet or her child. A separate trial was held on January 24th, 1721 for nine unfortunate Englishmen who happened to be on board Rackham's ship when it was captured by Jonathan Barnett. A few hours earlier, they'd been in a canoe looking for turtles and had been persuaded to join the pirates for a bowl of punch on the basis that they were armed and apparently helped Rackham to row his sloop. The court convicted them of piracy. Six of them were hanged, which everybody must allow proved somewhat unlucky to the poor fellows, as Captain Johnson noted hope you've enjoyed this podcast. More to come next time. See you then. Till then, take care. Although a surprising number of women seem to have gone to see on merchant ships or joined the navy disguised as men very few women overall became pirates apart from mary reed and anne Bonny, the only female pirates mentioned in any of the pirate histories are the scandinavian pirate alwilda the irish woman grace o'malley and the chinese pirate leader mrs cheng now very little is known about alwilda she was the daughter of a scandinavian king in the 5th century a.d Her father had arranged for her to marry Prince Alf, the young, the son of Sigurus, the king of Denmark, but she was so opposed to the marriage that she had some of her female companions dressed up as men, found a suitable vessel, and sailed away. The story goes that they came across a company of pirates who were bemoaning the recent loss of their captain. These pirates were so impressed by the regal air of Alwilda that they unanimously elected her as their leader. Under her command. The pirates became such a formidable force in the Baltic that Prince Alf was dispatched to hunt them down. Their ships met in the Gulf of Finland and a fierce battle took place during which Prince Alf and his men boarded the pirate vessel, killed most of the crew and took Elwilda prisoner. Full of admiration for the prince's fighting qualities, Elwilda changed her mind about him and was persuaded to accept his hand in marriage. They were married on board his ship and she eventually became the Queen of Denmark. Good work, Welder. While the story of Welder has a legendary air about it, the history of Grace O'Malley is well documented. You can look up things about her and you'll find quite a lot. There were several references to her in the state papers of Ireland and recent research has uncovered the main events in her life and shown that behind the heroine of the Irish ballads was a commanding woman famous for her stoutness of courage and person and for sundry exploits done by her at sea. Grace O'Malley was born around 1530 in Connaught on the west coast of Ireland. Her father was a local chieftain and the descendant of an ancient Irish family which for centuries had ruled the area around Clue Bay. The O'Malley's had castles at Belleclear and on Clear Island and maintained a fleet of ships which were used for fishing, trading and piratical raids on the surrounding territories. It seems likely that Grace went to sea as a girl, And it is said that she acquired her nickname granule which means bald because her cut because her hair was cut short like the boys she sailed with in 1546 when she was about 16 grace was married to donald o'flaherty and moved to the husband's castle at bun owen some 30 miles along the coast all that's known about this phase of her life is that grace had three children and that after a few years of marriage, her husband died, possibly murdered in a revenge attack. Grace returned to her father's domain and took command of the Amali fleet. She was by now beginning to build a reputation as a bold and fearless sea captain. In 1566, she married Richard Burke, another local chieftain, and moved to Rockfleet Castle in County Mayo. This became the base for her seafaring operations and was home for the remaining 37 years of her life. Rockfleet Castle still stands today on an inlet overlooking Clue Bay, that's C-L-E-W. It's a square, simple structure, but it is massively built of stone and stands four storeys high above the surrounding moors. This wet and windswept stretch of the Irish coast makes a startling contrast with the pirate strongholds in the Bahamas. Both those locations have got beaches and bays and numerous offshore islands, but instead of palm trees rustling under the tropical sun... Rockfleet Castle stands among rolling hills covered with heather and bracken and while the heat of Nassau is cooled by fresh breezes in the evening, the grey waters of Galway and Connemara are swept by southwesterly gales blowing in from the Atlantic. However, Clue Bay provided a secure anchorage for the O'Malley fleet which in the time of Grace O'Malley consisted of around 20 vessels. All the documentary references indicate that several of of these, ve- these vessels were galleys, apparently the only vessels of this type on the Irish coast. Captain Plessington of H.N. Mace, Tremontany, described an encounter with one of these vessels in 1601. <clears throat> this galley comes out of Connaught and belongs to Granny O'Malley, he wrote. He noted that the vessel rowed with 30 oars and had on board, ready to defend her, 100 good shot which entertained skirmish with my boat at most an hour. Some years earlier, Sir Hen- Henry Sidney, the Lord Deputy of Ireland, reported to Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth, the first secretary, there came to me also a most famous feminine sea captain called Granny Emaly, and offered her services unto me wheresoever I would command her, with three galleys and two hundred fighting men. In theory, an oared galley, a vessel developed to deal with the calms of the Mediterranean, was totally unsuitable for the turbulent seas round the British Isles, and presumably the oars were only used in light winds or for raids in sheltered coastal waters. At other times, the galleys, like the Viking longships, must have shipped their oars and relied on a single square sail for their motive power. The nature of Great O'Malley's piracy was determined by local circumstances. Although all Ireland was then part of the British kingdom ruled by Queen Elizabeth I, the government of each province was in the hands of a governor appointed by the Queen. These governors were usually English aristocrats or soldiers, and in Connaught they exerted an oppressive regime which led to constant rebellions from the local chieftains. Sometimes Greece led punitive raids against other chieftains, and sometimes she attacked and plundered passing merchant ships. In the 1570s, her attacks provoked a storm of protest from the merchants of Galway and compelled Sir Edward Fitton, the governor, to send an expedition against her. In March 1574, a fleet led by Captain William Martin sailed into Clue Bay and laid siege to Rock Fleet Castle. Grace marshalled her forces and within a few days turned the tables on Martin, forcing him to beat a retreat. But in 1577, during a plundering raid, in the lands of the Earl of Desmond, she was captured and imprisoned in Limerick Jail for 18 months. She was described by Lord Justice Drury as a woman that hath been a great spoiler and a chief commander and director of thieves and murderers at sea to spoil this province. When Grace O'Malley's husband died in 1583, she found herself in a precarious position. She was vulnerable to raids from neighbouring chieftains and in financial hardship because, according to Irish custom, a widow had no right to to her husband's lands. Believing that the best means of defence was attack, she launched a number of raids on the surrounding territories, but incurred the hostility of Sir Richard Bingham, who had succeeded Fitton as governor of the province. Bingham regarded her as a rebel and a traitor and sent a powerful force to Cloughby, which impounded her fleet. Ugh, oh, you'd think that they could have some admiration and support for her, wouldn't you? Anyway, she felt her only recourse was to appeal to the Queen of England, so Elizabeth I. In July fifteen ninety-three, a letter was received in London addressed to the Queen from your loyal and faithful subject, Grace O'Malley of Connaught, in your Highness's Realm of Ireland. Grace explained she'd been forced to conduct a warlike campaign in land and sea to defend her territory from aggressors. She asked the Queen to grant me some reasonable maintenance for the little time I have left to live and promised that in return she would invade with sword and fire all your highness enemies wheresoever they are or shall be. While the Queen's advisers were looking into the matter, Grace O'Malley's son was arrested by Bingham on charges of inciting rebellion. Grace decided that she must go to London and make a personal appeal to the Queen. Can't help seeing some parallels with other famous female that Queen Elizabeth um, was dealing with and had to deal through all her own men and all these other people just causing trouble and could have just left it to the women to talk. Anyway, the Irish ballads have made much of her voyage across the Irish Sea and her audience with Queen Elizabeth. Here's a wee example. "'Twas not her garb that caught the gazer's eye, though strange, twas rich, and after its fashion, good.' But the wild grandeur of her mane erect and high, before the English queen she dauntless stood, and none her bearing there could scorn as root. She seemed well used to power, as one that hath dominion over mane of savage mood, and dared the tempest in its midnight wrath, and through opposing billows cleft her fearless path. In fact, no details exist of the voyage or what was said at their meeting, all we know is that they met at Greenwich Palace September 1593 and a few days later the Queen sent a letter to Sir Richard Bingham ordering him to sort out some maintenance for the rest of her living of her old years. Bingham released her son from prison but continued to detain her ships and to harass her territories. However, however in 1597 Bingham, luckily, was succeeded by Sir Connors Clifford and the Amali fleet was able to put to sea again. Grace was now nearly 70 years old, though, and seems to have left it to her sons to run her fleet and defend the O'Malley lands. (coughs) Sorry, she died around 1603 at Rockfleet. Her son, Tibbet, proved a loyal subject and carried out Grace's promise to fight the Queen's enemies. And in 1627, he was created Viscount Mayo. Very interesting if you want to go and look up more about Grace O'Malley but she stands out as an isolated example in her time of a woman who took command of her ships and armed forces and provoked, sorry, proved able to survive as a leader in a hostile environment ruled by warlike men. So aside from military commanders like Bodicea and Joan of Arc, one of the few women to match her achievement was the Chinese pirate Mrs. Cheng. Now this bit is particularly interesting, I know, to my Aunt Maureen. So this is for you, Aunt Em. Mrs Cheng's fleets of junks ruled the South China Sea in the early years of the 19th century. Her full name was Cheng I, which means wife of Cheng I, but she's often referred to as Qing Yi Sao or Qing Shi. The customs, traditions and way of life of the Chinese have for centuries been very different to those in the West. In the ports and along the rivers of southern China, entire communities lived and worked on the boats. In these floating villages, the women played an active role in handling the sailing ships and small boats and worked alongside the men when fishing and trading. The same conditions prevailed in the pirate communities. English observers, such as Lieutenant Glasspool, noted that the pirates had no settled residence on land, but lived constantly on their vessels, which are filled with their families, men, women and children. It was not unusual for women to command the junks and to sail them into battle. The Chinese historian Yang Yang Lun described a pirate action which took place in 1809. He said, There was a pirate's wife in one of the boats, holding so fast by the helm that she could scarcely be taken away. Having two cutlasses, she desperately defended herself and wounded some soldiers. But on being wounded by a musket ball, she fell back into the vessel and was taken prisoner. she must have been so brave. Against this background, it was not so surprising that a woman should assume leadership of a pirate community, particularly as there was a long tradition in China of women rising to power through marriage. Mrs. Cheng was a former prostitute from Canton who married the pirate leader Cheng I in 1801. Between them, they created a confederation which at its height included some 50,000 pirates. Just incredible. By 1805, the pirates totally dominated the coastal waters of southern China. They attacked fishing craft and cargo vessels, as well as the ocean-going chunks returning from Batavia and Malaysia. They left off the provisions and equipment, which they plundered, and when these supplies were not sufficient, they went ashore and looted coastal villages. They frequently ransomed the ships they captured, and they ran a protection racket in the area around Canton and the delta of the Peril River. When Cheng I died in 1807, his wife moved to take over command. She secured the support of the most influential of her husband's relatives and she appointed Chang Pao as commander of the Red Flag Fleet, which was the most powerful of the various fleets in the Confederation. Now, this was a particularly shrewd move. Chang Pao was a fisherman's son who'd been captured by her husband and proved himself a brilliant pirate leader. He commanded respect among the ranks of the pirates, and he'd become the adopted son of Cheng I. Within weeks of her husband's death, Mrs Cheng had also initiated a sexual relationship with Chang Pao, and several years later, she married him. Henceforth, Mrs Cheng acted as commander-in-chief of the Pirate Confederation, with Chang Pao in charge of day-to-day operations. Between them, they laid down a really strict code of conduct, The punishment's even harsher than the codes adopted by the pirates who operated in the West Indies in the 1720s, so Captain Jack and Co. The punishment for disobeying an order or for stealing from the common treasure or public fund was death by beheading. For deserting or going absent without leave, a man would have his ears cut off. For concealing or holding back plundered goods, the offender would be whipped. If the offence was repeated, he would suffer death. The rules were equally strict over the tr- the treatment of women prisoners, though there was no special special um, there was no special attention for women's on this. The rape of a female captive was punishable by death if it was found that the woman had agreed to have sex with her captor, the man was beheaded, and the woman was thrown overboard with a weight attached to her legs. For three years, Mrs Cheng and Chang Pao fought, fought off all attempts by government forces to destroy the pirate fleets. In January 1808, General Lai Chang Keng, the provincial commander and chief of Che Kang, led an attack on the pirates in the Tung waters. A fearsome bloody action took place during the night and at one point, Lai sent in fire vessels. The result was an overwhelming victory for the pirates. Lai was killed by the pirate gunfire which tore out his throat. 15 of his junks were destroyed and most of the remainder were captured. Later that year though Chang Pao advanced up the Pearl River and threatened the city of Canton. Attempts were made to starve out the pirates by cutting their supply lines but this just led to them going ashore and looting the villages. Every naval force sent out to intercept the pirates was defeated and by the end of 1808 the authorities had lost 63 vessels some of the local communities constructed barricades and formed militia units, which managed to repel pirate raids. They were lured, They would lure pirates into ambushes and pelt them with tiles and stones and buckets of lime. All too often, the pirates swept aside these amateur forces, though, and took terrible revenge. At the village of Sanchan in August 1809, the pirates burned the place to the ground beheaded 80 villagers and hung their heads on a banyan tree near the shore. The women and children who'd been hiding in the village temple were carried off by the pirates. Nothing is recorded here about what happened to those women and children. When Chang Pao attacked the island of Tao Chao in September 1809, his pirates killed a thousand of the islanders and abducted 20 of the women. So the sheer numbers involved in some of these pirate attacks make the activities in the pirates' that make the activities of the pirates in the West Indies pale into insignificance. Sometimes Mrs Cheng's forces went into action with several hundred vessels and up to 2,000 pirates. Imagine how terrifying that would be. At the height of its power in 1809, the Confederation's fleet was larger than the navy of many countries. There were some 200 ocean-going junks, each armed with 20 to 30 cannon and able to carry up to 400 pirates. There were between six and eight hundred coastal vessels armed with 12 to 25 guns and carrying 200 men each. And there were dozens of small river junks, which were manned by crews of 20 to 30 men. These vessels had sails and up to 20 oars and were used to going up shallow rivers to plunder villages or to destroy farms when local communities had failed to pay protection money. So Mrs. Cheng's reign as a pirate leader though came to end in 1810. Chinese officials had enlisted the assistance of Portuguese and British warships and increasingly large forces were being assembled to counter the pirates. When the Chinese government offered an amnesty to the pirates, Mrs. Cheng resolved to take the initiative and secure the best possible terms. So she decided to go unarmed to the Governor General in Canton. And on April the 18th, my sister's birthday, April the 18th, 1810, she arrived at his residence with a delegation of 17 women and children in a bold move that that proved entirely successful. She was negotiating from a position of strength because the Governor General and his advisors were only too aware of the terrible damage and casualties which her pirate squadrons were capable of inflicting. It was agreed that the pirates would surrender their junks and their weapons, but in return they would be able to keep their plunder and those who were willing were allowed to join the army. Mrs Cheng also negotiated that her lieutenant and lover Chang Pao, the same person before you say is that two different people, be given the rank of lieutenant and allowed to keep a private fleet of 20 junks. On April the 20th, no less than 17,318 pirates formally surrendered and 226 junks were handed over to the authorities. Not all the pirates got off scot free. 60 were banished for two years, 151 were permanently exiled, and 126 were executed. Mrs. Cheng and Chang Pao settled in Canton but later moved to Fu where they had a son. Chang Pao eventually rose to the rank of colonel and died in 18- 1822, aged 36. <coughs> Mrs. Cheng, who was a wealthy woman, returned to Canton. She kept a gambling house, but she led a peaceful life, died in 1844 at the age of 69. It's a pity there's no authentic descriptions of Mrs. Cheng's appearance or character. The exploits and battles of the Pirate Confederation are recorded in detail in Chinese documents, but she herself remains a shadowy figure. She was evidently a resourceful and powerful woman, Whether she justifies the claim of one historian that she was the greatest pirate, male or female, in all of history is questionable. But for three years, she controlled and masterminded the activities of one of the largest pirate communities there has ever been. I can't help thinking I'd love to have known Mrs Chegg and seen what she was all about. Anyway, until next time, goodbye for now.